This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is House Agriculture Chairman Mike Conaway. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry. With a challenging economic climate and uncertain weather outlook, the private sector crop insurance industry infrastructure protects over 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Texas 11th District Representative Mike Conaway next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. With crop prices falling, farm incomes plummeting, and Mother Nature wrecking havoc, the private sector crop insurance infrastructure is more important today than ever. Providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The first days of the Trump administration have brought the first steps toward regulatory reform and promised action on multilateral trade deals. Texas Republican and Chairman of the House Agriculture Committee Mike Conaway says he'll take President Trump at his word on trade negotiations and look for even better opportunities than current agreements might offer. My thoughts on that is we had a TPP for on balance was good for production agriculture, uh, rice and tobacco aside. So if in fact he's going to make these bilateral agreements better, uh, we've got a, we've got a benchmark TPP, and so we'll be able to see what these bilateral things look like with respect to uh, production agriculture. And you know, he's a trader, he's a he's a deal guy, and he knows a good deal when he sees it. And so I'm confident that that he and Pence and others, as they, USTR, as they move these bilateral agreements, they'll look to what we've gotten out of the TPP to see, you know, is it in fact better for production agriculture? And I certainly anticipate it to do. With respect to Canada and Mexico. Obviously, you know, the TPP, we got a little more access to, to Canadian dairy products. I hope extends that. And a little small nugget, but nevertheless huge to our wheat farmers, and that is if they start grading our wheat properly when it goes into uh, Canada versus the downgrade they've been traditionally do, using uh, for the last several years. So um, we've taken him at his word. He says it's going to be better. It's going to be better. And, uh, and I'm excited about it. We'll see kind of which way it goes. There are advantages for multilateral agreements, and there are clearly advantages for bilateral he prefers the bilateral. He's in charge of that. And uh, we've got to go by our standard to con- compare it to, and especially with respect to the specific countries, you know, where the benchmark is. One concern might be that under the TPP, we were in the lead. The U.S. was setting the tone of trade and of the negotiations. If we step away from TPP and China follows through with their regional agreement, now China's in the lead on setting global trade, or at least in that Asian region. Is that a concern? Sure, and the Trump administration is fully aware of China and the competitive environment that we step into, or they are stepping into at this point in time. So my guess is that they've uh, weighed all of those advantages, disadvantages, and, and know that that uh, most of those countries on an individual basis would much prefer to deal with the United States. And if they know that bilateral agreements are coming, that may affect the way they, in effect, deal or agree to deal with uh, China, because I, I don't sense a lot of them would prefer a China for you know the, the agreement to be with China overall they'd rather be with the United States and if uh, the Trump administration moves expeditiously on these bilateral agreements then uh, that will give them some protection from being strong armed by uh, China into an agreement they're not all that fond of. The last time that U.S. agriculture went into a major downturn, there was an administration that was using agriculture and trade that helped to start the slide. 
Do you see any similarities here? Because the agricultural commodity groups are certainly unified in concern about the loss of TPP and perhaps a more protectionist attitude in trade. Well, there's an old adage out there, you either sell it or you smell it. And we're going to sell our products. Clearly, we produce more than we eat and more than we can use. That means we've got to sell into these international markets. That is not lost on our president and his team. It's certainly not lost on Mike Pence, who's uh, who's really familiar with this process. And when 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 your exports are... 30, 35% of what you produce, cotton is about 85% of what you produce. You know, that's that's not rocket science. We understand, they understand, that we have to be able to sell our products into these other markets and that uh, time is of the essence. So I'm, I'm willing to give uh, the new administration certainly a chance to, to do these bilaterals. And, and like I said earlier in the conversation, we've got a standard to go by now, a benchmark, and that is the deals we had under TPP with respect to uh, access and, and everything else that was there. What makes it difficult to unwind the waters of the U.S. that came from the Obama EPA? I'm asking that question myself. Obviously, we've got a lawsuit in place that's uh, got it stopped, and, and uh, there are 31 lawsuits going forward. I asked the question yesterday, what can Mr. Trump's uh, EPA administrator, can't he, in fact, unwind that right off the bat by withdrawing that regulation, stepping into the process of saying, we're going to unwind it, we're going to start over, basically doing what we're asking through uh, up until the lawsuits were filed, and that is, uh, you know, start over. And so I'm, I don't have an answer to that question yet. It's, uh, it's the, it would be the quickest uh, thing to do if, in fact, uh, uh, Mr. Pruitt has the ability to, to tell his team to either unwind it right this second as he gets there or start that process of undoing a rule. Uh, if it gets it undone, the lawsuit, in my mind, goes away. And, uh, and EPA starts over on getting a regulation that makes sense. How do you see the Trump administration and his cabinet members and perhaps their attitude toward agriculture? Have you, have you had conversations? Do you have concerns? Or are there particular nominations that you're encouraged about? Well, I'm certainly encouraged by Sonny Perdue. Right off the bat, I had a good conversation with him. He's ready to hit the ground running. He's got deep experience, uh, a veterinarian, so he certainly has a sense of livestock. He's, he's uh, been a governor for eight years of a state where agriculture is uh, is a big driver of the economy, and so he'll be uh, he'll be quick study on all of the issues uh, moving forward. So I'm excited about him getting confirmed and, and taking the lead at the USDA. I to a to a person and his nominees and all of his cabinet, I don't see anybody who would you know come in and say, well, we're going to expand regulation, we're going to expand reach of government into the quiet private lives of the American citizens. In fact, I see every one of them going the other direction. I had a conversation with Rince Priebus uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, I hope you and the president are having a conversation with each of these nominees, something to the effect of that we're going to grade you as a success in no small part based on how much smaller your agency is when you leave than when you get there. And uh, you saw the last couple of days the hiring freeze at the at the federal level that, that Trump's taken a very businesslike approach to these things, and I suspect each of his uh, nominees will do the same thing across the, uh, the executive branch agencies, with the exception of Department of Defense, Homeland Security. Clearly, we're all, those are those are different issues, but all the others, uh, I would think we can have less of them than we have right now. Is there guidance, or are there hopes that you have for uh, Secretary of Agriculture Purdue and the role that? The Ag Department will have to play both inside the administration and and working with you with the 115th Congress. Well, Governor Purdue will step into an entity that has uh, good professionals over there, folks that have implemented the 14 Farm Bill, uh, did it on balance really well. I uh, was pleased with uh, There were a couple of nits and nets we disagreed with, but but he'll step into a professional organization, and, uh, and then he'll then provide the leadership, the direction, those kinds of things. And these people understand that, you know, they work for him and for the president now and not uh, not the previous administration. Uh, you know, to Governor Purdue's a leader and, and, a, and a strong one at that. In my conversations with some of my 
colleagues who worked with him when he was governor and they were in the state legislature. He's a strong, tough guy. Uh, he listens. He, he will be willing to have the conversations, but also he's not a, he's not near a pushover. So I've got good confidence in, in the governor that he'll step into an already generally consumer-friendly or, or farmer-friendly entity uh, and we'll uh, and we'll move it forward. Drifting back to WOTUS, do we want it to just go away and be gone forever, or is there a goal now of under this new administration spending time and crafting a, a set of regulations that agriculture can work with? You know, that great question. Uh, the original premise of WOTUS was simply to clarify existing practices, and clearly, no one remotely believes that that's what uh, they did. They went well beyond that. Uh, I'm also cognizant of a lawsuit that's going on in Northern California under the current interpretation of the Clean Water Act where EPA and Corps of Engineers have posited an argument that says when you plow around a vernal pool, you create six-inch mini mountains and that those mountains produce pollution runoff into those vernal pools, which is dirt. And so that decision went all the way to the top at at, uh, EPA and all the way to the top at the Corps of Engineers according to the depositions taken in that case. And so if you have things like that going on within the system, that makes no sense whatsoever. So it begs the question of, of not doing anything. But uh, clearly, uh, EPA, on the current version of WOTUS, had a, an agenda that they were wanting to do, and it went stunningly beyond simply clarifying existing uh, regulations. So getting a new set of eyes on the issue, having a new leadership over there, and have them take a look at it and say, do we need to clarify? Is it okay as it is? I'm willing to uh, let the new administration have a bite at that apple without trying to judge one way or the other whether or not they need to do something or don't need to do something. But unwinding the current version, start over with a new look to say, do we need to do that? And if you do, uh, then, then move forward in a, in a way that production agriculture has got a voice at the table. Uh, existing uh, long-held standards of plowing uh, are, uh, are clearly taken into consideration when those, uh, if in fact a new rule is needed. Do you see this administration and this Congress being willing to delve into the Endangered Species Act? I certainly know that the House of Representatives will. The Endangered Species Act is something that, you know, we're not going to do away with it. It's, uh, that's, that's not the issue. But it needs to be modernized. Uh, the human species needs a standing in the, in the, uh, in the deal. It's the, it's the Species Act. It's not the Subspecies Protection Act. So there are a lot of things we can do. I think the costs, uh, impact on the uh, on the economy and impact on private property rights ought to be a part of the conversation. Not the determinant necessarily, but but only a rich country can spend millions of dollars protecting the blind translucent spider, which I don't know that God set that little critter up to be to, to be in the fight very long anyway. And they'd found one alive in the last 30 years, and it cost Texas and, and San Antonio millions of dollars to divert a underpass to an overpass because they found a blind translucent spider. So we're not a rich country. We had $19 trillion in debt. Only rich countries can spend a lot of money on a blind translucent spider. And so, yes, we need to modernize that act. Now, it's not going to go away, but the human species should be in there. The cost of it should be acknowledged by the decision makers. Yes, we believe it ought to cost X in order to protect a particular species and uh, and move forward. But, yeah, it's, uh, it is way time to uh, to have a second look at uh, Endangered Species Act. Can you look at the calendar with an idea of when the process of writing a new farm bill would take place, when the hearing process might be, and, and any hopes of accomplishing that task well before the fall of next year? Well, my goal is the goal of every good chairman is to get the thing done on time, uh, ahead of time. This drama associated with ex- expirations or short-term extensions or one year or whatever, we don't need to do that. 
uh, so we're going to start um, early. I can't I can't predict when it might might or might not be on the House floor or what's going to happen over the Senate. Uh, but I know that uh, that Mr. Trump is is want to, wants to drive things forward, and he and Mr. Pence both have had great comments relative to the farm bill and the reason for why uh, it's important for production agriculture and that they need that bill in place. Mr. Trump's also a business guy. He understands that the certainty of a five-year bill running from October 1st of 18 through uh, 22 gives the businesses, the, the lenders, creditors, uh, all suppliers, everybody, a five-year window to say, here's what the new plan looks like and here's what we can count on. So getting that stability into uh, production agriculture at a time where hopefully they're coming out of, of an extended period of low commodity prices, but nobody can tell you that because we've been in it for three years now. No one's really expecting uh, commodity prices to be a lot better over the next two. And so they're going to be going into the 18 Farm Bill with production agriculture having right now experienced the, the worst three-year drop in net income since the Depression. So there's clear reasons why we need one. My team is ready to get going. We're going to be prepared whenever it's ready to trigger the, the floor work and all that kind of good stuff. So we'll start the field hearing or listening sessions, as we may call them, probably in March moving forward. We'll have subcommittees are going to get after it uh, March going forward. And so we'll be prepared uh, whenever the, the floor calendar is right to uh, to move it forward. And I anticipate getting it done in advance of its expiration in uh, in uh, September of 18. You have some specific commodities that have certainly had a difficult time in those producers and regions of the country, and certainly cotton is one of those. We have reports recently from the Federal Farm Credit uh, District uh, out of Kansas City that's suggesting that operating loans uh, certainly may be a challenge now for more producers. Is the economic climate that we are experiencing now, the trouble that farmers may be finding in getting operating loans, a reason to move to a quicker right, or there other patches that can be done to help producers during this time until the new bill is done? Well, we lose some of our credibility when we try to trigger a new one just because of the current circumstances. And one of the arguments is, well, this is a five-year bill. We know what can count on those kinds of things. Mechanically, yes, I understand. I've, I've represented a lot of cotton farmers and understand the wreck they've been in under this new farm bill, being under stacks, it not working out from under Title One, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to, we're some moves we're trying to make to, uh, with the new administration with respect to cotton. But, uh, you know, by, there's no real way to do a farm bill light, in my view, that would be respectful of the circumstances. We also have to include the, the two years' work we've done on SNAP and the impact it will have on the legislative process because we intend to bring forth, based on the report that we put out in December, reforms to the SNAP program. Those will need to move in concert with the, uh, you know, Title One and, and conservation and rural development and, and research and all those things that go through a normal farm, farm bill. We'll also have the SNAP program going at the same time. So as I sit here right now, I don't anticipate a, a uh, Farm Bill light version that would uh, take into consideration the existing circumstances right this second. Uh, we're going to move the process uh, on an orderly basis. And, and we've been worried all along about credit, credit availability to our producers. Uh, we've been trying to you know, raise that flag about how hard it is for those folks to get their lending. Some of that may, in fact, be tougher standards by the regulators on banks and others by not letting them blown to long-established customers that uh, where the art of lending as opposed to the science of lending comes into effect. Uh, I used to be a banker, and it is not just mechanical. Now, as a CPA, I was a mechanical uh, lender. I didn't lend money to anybody. 
But that's not how the system works. It is art and it's science. It is knowing your customer, how they, how long they've been with the bank, what their family's like, all those kind of things fold into the into the equation as to whether or not they get lending for the next round of the fight. And to the extent the regulators are, are taking the art out of it, taking the decisions out of the hands of the folks who are going to have to collect those loans and the shareholders are going to have to, to bear the loss if those loans don't get repaid, uh, it may have an impact on it as well. Again, well beyond anything we could do with the Farm Bill. Discussing spending, uh, the Congress has a task of coming up with a continuing resolution for the balance of this year. You have a budget uh, that needs to be prepared for fiscal 2018. And at the same time, there's also words I'm hearing of budget reconciliation. Are existing programs a threat for cuts under reconciliation? And do you have any idea of the baseline that you'll have to work with in crafting new policy? No idea about the baseline. Uh, there's a revision to the baseline, that the typical January revision. Uh, we're analyzing it right now, but quite frankly, it's going to be, we anticipate, uh, being dramatic uh, the 10-year spending threshold we thought was going to happen is when it was done in 14, you know, 14 through 23, versus a 10-year window that's going to be 17 to 26. It's going to be dramatic. We believe dramatically less than what was anticipated in 14. Uh, well, well under sequestration, everything, any other number, any other peg you can meet. Uh, we're way under that on spending. So I'm be hard-pressed to be a, a, a part of any kind of a additional cuts to, to production agriculture spending, crop insurance, those kinds of things, uh, without some really strong evidence that, that we have to do that. Because the spending levels, we think, right now are about where they were when times were good, and it's half the income. So you'd expect the, pro, the support programs to have gone up dramatically. They did not. And so we've got good story to tell on across that board. And I'll be working with my budget colleagues and, and others to to make these arguments that uh, uh, the production of agriculture is not the problem, you know, given the fact that it's less than one percent of total budget, and that includes the eighty billion a year you spend on stamp. Do you see two paths ahead, or one, one with nutrition, the other with policy and promotion, or one path for a whole farm bill? Um, process questions can't be answered right now. I'm deeply committed to getting it done, getting both of them reauthorized, and we will walk whatever path makes the most sense to make that happen. So I'm uh, relatively agnostic in that regard. Um, the one, one caveat is that uh, for the most part, the folks I've seen who argue about splitting the farm bill into two pieces actually do so in order to defeat both the SNAP program and the, and the production agricultural piece. I'm clearly not interested in playing into that. But as to the overall process, it's way premature to try to make a guess on that. It was a three-person team that helped to bring agriculture together, and I suggest that with agriculture, nutrition, and conservation groups all working together to see that policy approved. Do you see that same group working together and necessary, or will there be other players uh, against opposition? Well, let's hope so. Clearly, those three players are important. Here's a player that doesn't get talked about much, and they're not represented well, quite frankly, among groups, and that's the consumer. You know, Americans spend about 9.8% of their disposable income on food, and that belies the fact that the folks at the upper end of the of the food chain uh, or economic level spend a whole lot less. I, my focus is going to be on that 20% at the bottom of the economic ladder who are just getting their feet onto that ladder and trying to move up. They spend 30 to 35% of their disposable income on food. And I don't want to do anything with respect to the farm bill that would arbitrarily and capriciously raise the cost of food just because we can't. And so that group needs a voice. That group needs to be at the table in every one of these conversations because that's who's benefiting from the existing program. You can like the current program or you can hate the current program, but you cannot deny that it delivers. 
the safest, most abundant, and affordable food and fiber supply of any developed nation in the world. And those words roll off your tongue real easy, but that has an impact to me because I'm looking at a single-parent mom living down at that, in the, in that 20%. Her food budget is how she keeps things hearth and home together. The rent doesn't change. The car payment doesn't change. So if she's got some unexpected expense during the month, it comes out of her food budget. And so I don't want to do anything that hurts her ability to feed her family wholesome, nutritious American food. Uh, in the main. And so that's a group that's underrepresented in these conversations, but I'm going to talk about it over and over and over because the consumer benefits at the grocery store, at the restaurants, every time they buy food. And that's a, that's a, something that's not, it's lost on most Americans. They just don't really think about it because they've had such a good deal on food for so long, they don't know any different. They just take it for granted. And that's, uh, that's dangerous because we've got good, hardworking men and women in, in the farming industry production agriculture, farmers and ranchers who get up every morning, take risks that you and I would never take, work harder than you and I would never work, and, and feed this country. And, and I'm going to work really hard to protect them, and I'm going to work hard to protect the consumers who benefit in the main from the, from that hard work. Mr. Chairman, we want to thank you very much for taking time out of an incredibly busy schedule to be with us here on Open Mic. Mr. Chairman, the floor is yours. Well, I just want to thank all those farmers and ranchers across this country who provide the safest, most abundant, affordable food and fiber supply the world knows and feeds much of that world. And they, they get the credit for that when people are eating and they love the food. And if you talk about farmers sit outside the, the, uh, the safety net program, everybody hugs them and spooches on them. As soon as you start talking about the safety net program and things that they have to rely on to stay in business, then all of a sudden become the devil and, and, and that they're the budget busters. And they're the, but for them, we'd have a surplus in the budget. And, and you and I both know they know that's different. So that's not the case. That's totally wrong. So moving forward, I'm going to be as good an advocate as I can on their behalf to, uh, to, to be their voice, as well as that voice, as I mentioned earlier, of the, of the consumer at the bottom end of the, of the economic ladder who is benefiting mightily by the hard work of production agriculture. Our thanks to House Agriculture Chairman Mike Conaway, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry. Thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.